Yeah, turn into your Bible into 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Second Corinthians chapter three, and uh, we're going to look at it from verse seven. Oh, my wife's done a runner; she's not here. Oh, you are there. Where's oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she gone? She's <laughs> like writing not in my line of sight. So she's she's gone. At least he's missing you. Eh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, 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 you're, you're good. Okay, so today I want to talk about the glory of God. And it says in verse 7, Now if the ministry of death, chiselled in letters on stone tablets, came in glory, so that the people of Israel could not gaze at Moses' face because of the glory of his face, a glory now set aside, how much more will the ministry of the Spirit come in glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, much more does the ministry of justification abound in glory. Indeed, what once had glory has lost its glory because of the greater glory. For if what was set aside came through glory, much more has the permanent come in glory. Um, let's carry on reading through. Uh, Since then we have such a hope, we act with great boldness, not like Moses who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside, but their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day, when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil is still there, since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord, as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. Has anyone ever seen the glory of God? Mm, no, okay. A few times. Can you share? Can you share what you saw? Well, I've had uh, an encounter where I was just blown away by the love of God and for three weeks afterwards I didn't even know what to do. It was a vision and I was getting taken up to, to him in the cloud and as I got closer and closer the experience was just getting deeper and deeper but then I, for some stupid reason, I thought who's been left behind? <laughs> I looked back and then I came out of this vision I was just like curled up in my bed like this and. Um, the spirit was on me and then he just, I just couldn't even, um, everything was so perfect, I forgot that even this earth existed, so his presence was so much love and it made me think about when it says God is love and he's complete in himself and I just didn't want to come out of that experience and go anywhere else and then when he slowly lifted off of me, I, just, I just felt like this dirty little thing curled up in the bed because yeah. just, he's so pure and wonderful and then yeah it, it freaked me out of life so it was so amazing that once he'd come away i was just like well i didn't know what to do for like three weeks i was just almost like in a state of uh wow that was just incredible so that was one which Amen. i would say was a, his glory on, on it's just amazing and i was really praying actually for three weeks uh, three days just praying in my head like constantly constantly i don't it's weird because I've never prayed like that before. I've never prayed like that. But it's just strange how that happened and then I got that. So it was quite 
Yeah, that's good. Well, the Bible says to pray without ceasing. It's one of the New Testament commandments. And so when you, when you see something of the glory of God like that, it does something good to you and it does something bad to you. What could it possibly do that's bad? Well, what it does for you that's good is that it makes you want to settle for nothing less. The problem is, is then when you get anything less, it's never good enough. It always leaves you hungering and thirsting for God. So God's given you that for a reason. So that's something, you know, normally if you get those kind of visions, that's something that's the place where God constantly wants you to be, you know, where you're going. And again, it's, it's in the high place. It's as Moses ascended the mountain of the Lord and his face was transfigured uh, with, because he was literally resting in the glory of God. And when he rested in the glory of God, and he was up there 40 days, 40 nights, and the next time he was up there for 80 days, then when he came down, he was just literally infused with God. And it was literally coming out of his pores. And I think that's what God wants for the church in the days of head. Uh, and I'll explain a little bit more about that in a minute. I've only seen the glory of God once, and it was before I was a Christian. And uh, I don't share this story much, I just forget probably because I just forget about it. But in this, this was before I was a Christian, and I, um, at the time, I was in a bit of a mess, and I, I, I was taking aerosol gas, breathing it in, and making myself stoned and high and stuff. And, and then I had this <coughs> quite, this, this, this vision. And in my room appeared God, and the devil and they were having a t- discussion amongst themselves about who was going to get my soul and the devil he seemed probably pretty happy that he was going to get it um, <clears throat> but I could look upon the devil but I could not physically look upon God he, w- he appeared not in any kind of form but this swirling mass of power and energy that's all I can describe it it was this big sea and the 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 holiness of God's glory, because the word glory in Greek means doxa, which means weightiness and heaviness. So it's not all about light and stuff. It's also about the weightiness and the heaviness of the holiness of God. And, and I physically, literally, no matter how hard I tried, I could not look <coughs> upon the face of God. It hurt me. It physically brought pain to my eyes, like trying to look at the sun directly on its most intense moment of the day and your eyes are not used to it. You just can't do it. And this is the glory of God. And this is what Moses had. When he came down, people weren't just freaking out because his face was shining. They could probably not even barely look at the guy because he was so enthused with God's holiness that as people came near him, they could not cope with it. They could not deal with it. I remember being in a bit of a revival once <coughs> and uh, I remember this particular pastor and uh, he, he, he was a very humble man and the anointing of God was upon him so strong that I could barely get within so much foot of him. And if I got too close to him, I could just literally feel myself going like about to pass out. Not because he's so awesome, but because the glory of God was resting upon him. And I believe that God wants us, the church, not just here, but the whole of the world, the whole of his church, to shine with his glory. And Moses shone with a glory that was fading because a new and better glory was coming. See, it it doesn't say that the old glory was rubbish in comparison to it was basically saying the old glory has has faded, not because it's gone away, but because a greater glory has come now a greater glory and a greater ministration through Christ who is a high priest. 
And he now, as we see at the transfiguration, when he was on the mountain and he transfigured himself before the disciples, who was stood before him other than the disciples? Who else was there? Moses and Elijah. And so, and they were talking to Jesus, but Jesus was the one that far outshone them. It's interesting they knew who he was. They never met Moses and Elijah. How the heck do they know it was him? Because obviously, when you, when you see, I mean, I've met people who have actually had encounters with the prophets of old, of God, that has appeared to them in visions. They instantly know who they are. There's no question, like, who are you? It's like, they know who they are. And these, you know, when they would appear, they would have appeared in a degree of some glory. Like the angels, when they proclaimed the birth of Christ, they, it says they shone with the glory of the Lord. It wasn't their glory, it was God's glory they shone with. How did they shine with his glory? Because they were in his presence. And so you have the law and the prophets that are stood before the Messiah, and yet his glory far outshines them all because he is God. And he is the giver of the law. And he is the giver of the, of, of the prophets. And he is the one who they bear witness to. He is the fulfillment of the Torah. He is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that was always pointing, always pushing ahead, looking to something beyond itself of a greater, greater glory. And God wants his church to have his glory. You go, oh, where's that in the Bible? John 17, it says, Lord, I pray that the glory that you've given to me will also be upon them. God wants his church to be full of his glory. And that means, brothers and sisters, just like you went up the mountain and you experienced the glory of God, there is a process. God showed me this, this, this uh, vision a long time ago. And I was up Ports Downhill in the dream. It was a dream, not a vision. I was in this dream and it was boring it down with rain. And this was a sign of God's blessings and revival that was coming. And it was just absolutely pouring it down. And the windscreen up was in my car like that. Like, just couldn't, couldn't keep up with it. And I got out of the car and I got out my friend and we were ankle deep in this water. It was just everywhere. And he was saying, Chris, I, I don't need to smoke anymore. I've got victory over these sins and stuff in my life. But he was quite happy being ankle deep in the things of God. And I was like, okay, great. So I kind of left him up on the hill and he was having a good time. And then I walked down the hill, but of course the water was getting deeper and, and here it was waist deep. And the streets, they, I saw the street names, I can't remember what they were now, but they all had like super spiritual names that represented something. And so it was up to waist deep. And loads of Christians were having fun at this point. They're like, oh great, this is great. I'm waist deep in the glory and they were having fun and being released of demons and all kinds of manner of sicknesses and inhibitions and, and addictions. God was setting them free. But that still wasn't really, that was all good, but it wasn't really the fullness of what God wanted for the church. And then I saw other Christians further down the road who were neck deep in the things of God and in the glory of God. And the Spirit was showing me, still don't want you here either, even though it was the best that Christians had ever had, ever, in all of living history. They've never experienced this kind of outpouring, never experienced or touched this kind of glory. And then the Holy Spirit took me out into the depths of the ocean and pushed me right down where you die and said, this is where I want my church, where deep calls unto deep and the waters crash over me and I am drowned in the very presence and the glory of God, that I lose who I am yet somehow don't in the magnitude of God's being and in his glory. It truly is a, a mystery, but truly I understood what it meant to be in Christ Jesus and the vastness of an ocean that I was in him 
I know it sounds all weird and super spiritual, please, please bear with me. But it was in that moment that I understood something of the depth of Christ that, that we just don't have right now. We don't have this kind of revelation. We don't have this kind of anointing. We don't have this kind of glory that is on us right now. And the first dream that God ever gave me many years ago, um, well, it was a long time ago. So it was probably about five years into my marriage. So I'd married that lady over there, Tracy. Say hello, Tracy. <laughs> so I've been married for five years. And suddenly I got this dream. Now this dream, I was walking down the south coast, and I'm sorry if I've said these things before, but there's, there's all the points to this. And there are all these beach huts down, down, going down, down, the, down the coastline. And at the end of these beach huts was this old kind of stone brick house. And then I saw this tornado of fire coming out from the sea, and this was the Spirit of God, and he wasn't happy. And he came in, and these beach huts were all ministries that had been set up in the name of man, but weren't truly founded by the Spirit. And they were destroyed with such ferocity and such, I can't, I can't describe how fer um, ferocious this fire was. It was so hot, it evaporated these things. It was like, bang! And they were, as the bits exploded, they literally vaporized into the air because it was so hot as it's been consumed by the fire of God. And I literally ran for my life feeling the searing heat of God's judgment upon all these ministries that weren't set up accordingly and correctly. They were just being wiped out. And then I saw down the end when the fire came to this big brick house, the fire then descended upon this house and it just glowed and hovered over it. And then the fire rose. And then in the next part of the vision, I was immediately transported into the house. And the house, all the walls were full of gems and semi-precious stones. And, and, and the house had been purified by the fire of God, by the glory of God and by his holiness. That this truly was the end time church that was purified by refiner's fire and the glory of almighty God. Hallelujah. And it was beautiful. It was a true church, not based on what we would like to think the true church is based on, because that's what all those beach huts were. They were man's ideas about this, that and the other. And every one of us, every Christian, everyone in this room and me, you, everyone, there's not one person excluded from this. We all have incorrect doctrine. And the Spirit of God came on his church and sorted it out and purified it. I'm reminded of a Welsh revival that's not spoken of. Um, it's a Welsh revival before the famous Welsh revival, but was equally powerful. And it was these two ministers. One was an Arminian. Uh, so he, he believes in, you know, anyone can get saved and, and all that stuff. And then you had the Calvinist minister. And these two did not get on. OK, Arminians and Calvinists, they're like oil and water. OK, they don't mix. They don't want to mix. They don't like to mix. You put them together. They're not going to play. All right. And, and but the spirit of God moved on these two men to come together and to work together and love each other and work together, whether they liked it or not. And so they went out and they got so many people saved and supernatural signs and wonders. One of these guys, God had given him such an amazing memory that he could remember anything in the Bible. He knew exactly where to find it, what verse, what chapter. He didn't need nothing, but he never had that kind of memory before. It was a supernatural thing. But all that ended when the, when the Calvinists and the Arminians decided, you know what? I'm tired of your doctrine. I'm tired of your doctrine. I'm tired of what you believe and I'm tired of what you believe. And they went their separate ways and the Spirit of God said, great, I'm done. 
and out of he went, and the revival stopped. Let there not be a spirit of division in my church, says the Lord. Let there be no spirit of division in my church. I remember God giving me this vision once and it was of a big tent crusade and uh, the Holy Spirit washed in and I saw these men's hands and he ripped their hands off, the, off things and said, this is my church, get your hands off it. He wasn't talking to me personally, he was talking to like the, about the church and the state that we're all in. You know, we can look at, you know, it's funny how everyone else is the Laodicean church but us. Oh yes, they're the Laodicean church but we're okay, all of us. All of us are asleep at the wheel. Me, you go, I'm not asleep at the wheel. Uh, I know exactly what's going on in the world. I don't care if you know exactly what's going on in the world. I don't care what you think you know. We, I have seen the church that is to come and we are not it. Because it can only be transformed and transfigured by the living glory of God and the spirit of God. And when we know what true holiness is and when we have touched the true power of God, all our bickering all our murmuring, all our nonsense will be as nothing before the living God. I had a friend and he, he, his pastor experienced the Welsh revival. And uh, he used to ask him questions, you know, when he was alive and said, uh, hey, you know, can you tell me, I mean, what, what happened in the Welsh revival? Uh, you know, tell me some stuff. He said, well, what were you doing in there for like, you were in there for hours and hours. I mean, they didn't have like cool worship music like we do. It's thine be the glory and that was it really. And, and a little, a little, I know, sermonette, and you're done. So what were you doing in there for all that time? And he said, the presence and the holiness of God was so thick and so strong, you daren't move. So people were stuck to the floor for hours, wouldn't dare move, would not dare move in the presence of Almighty God. You know, Moses couldn't look upon the face of God. He said, God, show me your glory. God said, no, I'll fly past you and you can see the back end of me, but you will not see my face because anyone who sees the full face of God's glory will die. If God showed us 1% of his holiness in this room right now and showed us 1% of his glory, every one of us would be dead instantly because we can't, cope with it. We cannot cope with the holiness and the otherness of God. We can't cope with the beauty and the glory of God. And to be engulfed in even 1% of his presence would be so much for us, we'd go straight to glory. Because these clay jars could not contain or be able to cope with that kind of glory. 1%. God has to diminish himself to such a slight, tiny level that even the most powerful of revivals is a meagre nothing of nothingness of his glory. And yet the angels stand in the presence of Almighty God day in and day out. But God wants that glory to rest on you and me. I remember once, again, I know I've said this a few times, I was out for a walk in my lunch hour at work and I was walking down this sort of wooded glade and there was this man who came out of a bush. You know, I don't know what he was doing in there, but he came out of the bush and he saw me and he immediately cowered back in. And then he came out, saw me, cowered back in. 
And I, you know, I'm, I'm a bit funny. I'm like, what's his problem? So I carried on walking towards him. And, uh, and again, he, he looked terrified. It was, and he, he, I said, are you okay, mate? And he said, he said, you're glowing. He said, you're shining. Why are you shining? Why are you glowing? And I, and I, I, I had experienced this before. And I said to him, it's not me that's glowing. It's Christ in me that you're seeing. It's nothing to do with me. It's, me, it's Christ in me that you can see. And I got to talk to him and pray for him. But that day, God said to me, I want my church to carry this kind of glory. And I believe his church will carry that kind of glory. But to carry that kind of glory is not something that comes easily or cheaply. One cannot be, we cannot be in the place of division, angst. We can't be in the place where we're divided on opinions. Because everyone in this room, I guarantee, if you lined us all up, right, and we went through certain doctrinal points, every one of us would disagree with every one of us pretty much about pretty much everything. And that's a fact, you know. And you go, well, we're in a denomination. Well, good for you, but you don't agree with what they agree with. They, you know, you think they're all going to hell, and they all think you're going to hell. I don't know if you know that, but have you ever looked at other denominations and what they say about us? Have you ever watched YouTube videos made from their perspective, looking in on us, instead of us looking at YouTube videos about them from our perspective. Have you ever seen YouTube videos from their perspective, looking in at us from their point of view? Man, that makes you breathe hard. He's like, uh, uh, well, no, I don't agree. Uh, yeah, it's not comfortable. It's not comfortable viewing because we need to be honest with ourselves and know that our backyard is not so beautiful, not so clean and clear as we'd like to think. And we need the living holy God as much as they do. We need the life-changing power of God in our lives as much as any of people's Christ people need. We are so desperate for a move of God. We're so desperate for his holiness in his church. We're so desperate to see the glory of God revealed again in our midst. Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But do we want that? Do we want him? Do we really want Jesus? Do we really want him? Do we really want him? I remember years ago, the Holy Spirit said to me, I was praying for revival and he says, you know, son, there's a day coming when you wish you'd never prayed those prayers because you will see the power of God so strong in days to come that you wish you'd never prayed those prayers. And I remember a guy, a very famous healing evangelist, he said there was one um, outreach that he was doing, it's in Argentina, and the spirit of God was just, it was uncontrollable, it was uncontainable. He said people, he said normally, you know, God used him and he would like give the altar call and these people. He said there were certain miracles that were so beyond anything he'd ever seen before, beyond anything, that he literally ran off the stage and hid because of the presence of God was so strong and that God's holiness was setting, people's free, setting people free and the fear of God came upon him and it was like, he didn't move. Oh God, oh God, oh God, please never let me take any glory that belongs to you. Never let me take any glory that belongs to you. We serve a wonderful God and a holy God and the church, I believe, we've lost, we've lost something of the glory of God. Because you see, as it says here, we will go from one degree of glory to another as we, behold, as, as we gaze and behold him, we shall become just like him. And so the more that we gaze upon and ponder upon the glory of God, the weightiness of his holy and his loveliness, 
It will change us and transfigure us and transform us. In Romans 12, if I turn to it now, you all know this passage, it's a very famous one. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. It's my mate Stephen Seagull. So that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good. That's the only time anyone's ever laughed at that joke. Thanks. <laughs> Tell my kids all the time, like, don't get it. Right. Anyway. But be transformed. Now, the word there in the Greek for being transformed is the Greek word metamorpho, which is only used one other time, which is when Jesus was transfigured. Okay, so what it's literally saying here is be transfigured. Let the glory and the, and, the, and the anointing and the power of God so transform us by the renewing of our minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, when the, when the weightiness of God comes in on you in those situations, you just know what's good and bad. You do, don't you? You know it. I mean, you know it. You know what's good and bad. But the, the problem is with the weightiness of God, and this is the bit that we don't like, is that it reveals things inside of us which we would rather not know about. Isaiah, in chapter 6, is a beautiful picture where he, I don't know what he's doing, he's, he's, he's either in the temple or he's taken up to the holy temple. But anyway, Jesus appears before him and the seraphim, Okay, so that, according to Revelation, is the most holy place where the 24 elders are, the seraphim and God. And there he experiences the glory of God. And what does he say? He falls down and says, woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And when he said the word undone, it, it means in the Hebrew to literally be unraveled like a, like a woolen jumper. You know, when you get a thing and you pull it, it's going He's literally coming apart at the seams. He cannot cope with the beauty and cannot cope with the holiness of God. And more and more he becomes aware of his own lack of holiness and his own depravity of his own person. And all he can say, even though he's a prophet of God, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. And then the seraphim. I mean, what an amazing thing to happen. The seraphim, I don't know if you know this, but angels are, it says in the Bible, are ministering servants. Angels are very much priestly. Did you know that? Most people never thought about it. That they actually are priestly. You know, where's that in the Bible? Well, have a look in the book of Revelation. They are constantly holding the incense altar, uh, the, the old little uh, laver, what's it called? Laver, is it laver, laver? I can't think of the word. Anyway, one of those little things that burns with incense and you hold it. So it says they come before the Lord with incense. They crack incense on the prayers that go up before the Lord. They do praise, they do worship. We see that in the book of Isaiah in chapter six, the seraphim have access to the coals of the altar, which is in heaven. And so they are they have a priestly function before God. And they came and they put a coal, a red hot coal from the altar of the holy living God and touched his lips. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, yes. To be touched by something from heaven itself, to be touched by the most pure, most holy altar from the most pure, holy tabernacle of which the one on earth is just by mere paper mache puppet and and construction of the real one in all its glory wow he touched and he saw god hallelujah 
And in that moment, God justified him, cleansed him from his unrighteousness. And that's why you and I, even though we are unworthy, and we are, but because of the blood of Christ, he's made us worthy, that we can come boldly to the throne of grace, that we can come to him in a time of need. You see, in the Old Testament, on the Ark of the Covenant, it was a judgment seat and remained a judgment seat for one, uh, for, nine, for basically all of the days of the year, apart from one day, which was the Day of Atonement. And when the blood was shed upon the, uh, and scattered around the, um, the Ark of the Covenant, then it went from the judgment seat to the mercy seat. And now through the blood of Christ, we now have a permanent mercy seat that's opened before us, that we can go in through the veil of his flesh. You see, all of these things written in, he in Hebrews are riddles and parables for us to discern. How is it that Jesus' flesh is a veil? Because he is the temple. If you destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it again. And if his veil is the flesh, and his flesh is the veil, you go through that veil, you immediately come into one place. The Holy of Holies, because it was the veil that was torn that had access to the Ark of the Covenant, which you could only go once a year. But now we can go into the greater tabernacle, the true tabernacle, the one in heaven. And we don't go through a veil curtain only once a year and only a high priest can do that because now you are all priests unto God of the order of Melchizedek, not of the order of Aaron. That's been done away with. How has it been done away with? Because Hebrews says the Torah has been altered. Indeed, it had to be altered because how could someone from the tribe of Judah become a high priest? Therefore, the Torah was altered so that Jesus became the high priest of the order of Melchizedek. And you and I now become priests unto God of that new order. But we don't go through a veil made of curtains. We now go through the veil of Christ's flesh and we enter into the true tabernacle of God, the temple of God, Jesus, the living body. We come through him into the very presence of God, into the mercy seat. And guess what's over the mercy seat? The glory of God Almighty, the Father, who is spirit and is light. In the beginning, there was God. And God said, let there be light which was the revealing of his glory into a place where there was darkness because the sun and the moon weren't made to day four. So the things that were taking place on day one was the revealing of God in the darkness. And the darkness could not comprehend it because the darkness is absence of light. And where there is the glory of God, darkness has to flee. And in God, there is no shifting or varying of shadows. And it says in the Psalms that he clothes himself in garments of light. He is the light of men. He is the glory. Jesus is the glory of the Father. The exact, says in Hebrews 1, the exact icon of the Father. The exact representation and mirror image of his glory. So when we saw Jesus transfigured, it wasn't just Jesus shining. shining. It was the glory of the Father shining through him as now Jesus wants his glory to shine through his church. And in these last days, I'm sorry, but I don't believe in a remnant church theology. You won't find it in the Bible. Anything to do with remnant theology is to do with Israel and not to do with the church. This idea of the, and again, it's the same old thing. The remnant church, I'm in the remnant church, but nobody else is. You know, it's always the same thing. Oh, yes, 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 we're in the remnant church. Then why, why do you think you're in the remnant church? Well, why? What do you think is so special about you that you think you're in the remnant church? 
I'm right. There you go. That's, that's the answer. That's because that's what we think. At least he's honest. That's what we think. Well, I'm right. But then I know it's a joke, but that's but that's what makes it funny. It is funny because we think we're right. It's like we're not layered to sin. Everyone else is layered to sin. It's not couldn't possibly be us. You know, even though we're half staggered, staggering around, half naked and blind. Have you ever had those dreams where you're naked? No, don't tell me. I don't want to know. But anyway, right. Occasionally I get one or two of them every now and then. And, and I had one last night. And it's like it's not nice to walk around naked. Right. Put some clothes on, man. What's wrong with you? OK. And it's the same with God. We can't, we, you know, we've got to come before him clothed in those garments. We can't be like the Laodicean church, which is blind and naked. Naked. She had no clothes on, yet she thought she was so awesome, so great. That's the irony of the Laodicean church. She thinks everyone else is blind and she's doing all right, but she's the one walking around with no clothes on. Anyone, anyone getting this? Yes. Yeah, I get the point, Chris. Yeah. If anyone thinks it's everyone else's layer to sin, maybe you haven't got any clothes on. Hallelujah, glory be to God. I should probably wrap this up in a minute. <laughs> Let's go to Romans 12. Sorry, not Romans 12, uh, Hebrews 1. Thank your pardon. I'll sort of close with this. Long ago, I spoke about this last week, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So through Christ, God the Father made the world. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint, or in the Greek it says icon, of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. Hallelujah. I love listening to atheists and their arrogancy. It's like, you know, they, the, the, the flawed arguments that they come like, well, the reason why I don't believe in God is because there's so much suffering in the world. So I flip it on its head, okay, and say, okay, when life's been going great then, do you worship and praise God and thank him for how great your life is? No. Well, there's the flaw in your argument. You want to blame God when things are going bad, but you don't want there to be a God when everything's going great. So your argument is flawed. But here... We have this wonderful picture that God is in control and everybody, it says in the Psalms that he, that the earth and all its peoples and the seas and everything therein belongs to the Lord. Everybody belongs to God. As it says in Acts, we live and move and have our being in him. The fact that you get to get out of bed in the morning and even breathe air is because of the goodness of God. And one day everybody's going to see that. And I tell you something, I've been with atheists who have ranted and raved at me and also waved their fist at the living God saying, when I see God, I will say this and this and this and this. But I tell you, when they see God in all of his greatness, in all of his grandeur and glory and power and majesty, they will fall to their knees and confess, oh my God, Jesus, you are Lord. And there, do you know who's going to convict them? Do you know who's going to send them to hell? Themselves. Romans 1, their consciences will accuse them. Can you imagine that your greatest betrayer will be you standing for the judgment seat of God? Not for us as Christians, because we have our conscience cleansed. But when for an unbeliever, they'll come before God, all with their preconceived like script of what they're going to say to God and give them a piece of their mind. And they stand before this holy God and none other than themselves starts to condemn themselves. 
you did this in 1972, you said that to that person, and all these thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of things they knowingly and willfully did wrong, or even did wrong and didn't even know about it. Their conscience will sear them, and their conscience will convict them, and their conscience will say, I deserve hell. Isn't that frightening? Isn't that staggering? That the atheist in all his pride and all his arrogance will be condemned by his own self and his own conscience? Wow. Jesus will just be sat there looking at them. <laughs> Bing! <laughs> Time for me to end now. <laughs> Dear Lord Jesus, I pray, Lord, for your most holy church, and she is a holy church, and she is the body of Christ. And he, yes, Lord, we are in a mess, but Jesus, throughout history, we've been in a mess. And you've helped revive and helped reform and helped fix your church, Lord God. And Lord, we cry out and pray to you, Lord. Please, Lord, it says in Ephesians, you're going to come back for a glorious church, not a weak, battered, impoverished, useless, pathetic thing. But you're coming back for a glorious church. And Lord, I pray, Lord, we implore you one more time. Will you please pour out your glory upon your church? that she may shine your splendor and your glory and that the world will truly know that we are your disciples and that you are with us and that many, 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 many will come to your name at these end of days because you said in your word before the great and terrible day of the Lord, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Hallelujah. And that's a promise for the end of days. And we thank you, Jesus, that you've heard our prayers. And we thank you that you are coming in glory and you will do something magnificent in these last days. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.